0: oh so professional where are you I'm in my I'm in my office my little we work office <laughs> oh, so. with, my, with my baby stroller and boxes in the back. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hi friends. Hi. how I are do? you I'm good how are you Windsor I haven't seen you in so long I know
1: literally I think since Boston yeah, Crazy. yeah.
0: Oh, wait God. what
1: yeah, we met in Boston before I did that video for Table List.
2: Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Not about that. So, so
1: that was a long time ago. <laughs> very
2: okay. long so, time ago. I have the free Zoom account because I'm a cheapo. So if we um, get cut off, we'll yeah. just start if that's okay with you.
0: Yeah, that's totally fine. Okay, I mean, I can we can use mine. Is that easier, or does it not matter?
2: I don't think it matters. Okay, cool. I'm recording. Um you got the recording thing, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, so welcome to our podcast. Thanks. <laughs> it's our first uh video recorded Zoom podcast. Yeah, I guess so. that's true. Yeah. Nice. That's yeah.
0: exciting.
1: I know.
2: Okay, so we like to start off the interviews with, uh, with hot seat questions that I did not send to you. Oh boy. Okay. It's a surprise. <laughs> So there is about four questions and then we're going to get into the ones that I sent you. Um, But we're going to start off pretty hot. Okay. All right. Okay. Number one, if there are 25 hours in a day, how would you spend that extra hour? I'd sleep.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. Okay, if there was a zombie apocalypse, what do you think your winning survival strategy
0: would be? Oh my gosh. That's a crazy question. <laughs> um, my winning survival uh, I don't know. I this is a hard one. Um, I would I would I don't know, run and hide probably.
1: <laughs> probably would work. <laughs>
2: Okay. Um if you could text someone without that person ever knowing it was you, who would you text and what would the message be?
0: Oh my gosh. Um if I could text someone they wouldn't know it was me, who would I text and what would the message be? This mm-hmm. is a really hard one. Um I'd probably text Let's see. I'd probably text Sasha and tell her how beautiful she is. Oh, come
2: on! <laughs> come on. Okay, don't worry. Get into it. Okay, last one.
1: Okay, if you only had one day to spend a million dollars, how would you spend it?
0: Oh my God, this is a great one. Um, Let's see. I would probably throw the biggest, best, most extravagant party ever and invite every single person that I love and care about and just have the best time ever.
2: I love it. Okay. So let's, oops, let's get into the questions. First of all, we didn't even um, introduce Kyla.
1: Well, we're about to.
2: Okay. So
1: (laughs) And just so you know, we like to like keep everything super conversational. So I totally. don't feel like our questions or anything that you have to have like exact answers to like, if you have a great story or anything you want to pop in, like just go rogue and go wild.
0: Totally. You got uh-huh. it. All right.
2: So what's your name? Where are you from? And what's your occupation?
0: So my name is Kyla Cerny. I am from New York and um. <clears throat> I'm currently co-founder and CEO of Dispense, uh, which is an e-commerce um, software for cannabis dispensaries. And I'm also co-founder and CEO of Tableist, which is a um, ticketing reservations and guest management software for hospitality. Okay.
1: Very cool. And did you always know you wanted to be like an entrepreneur or at least like in some form really heavily involved in the business world?
0: So I don't know if I knew like how early, I didn't, I don't know if I even knew what like being an entrepreneur was like very early days, but I always knew that, um, I learned better through experience and not through like sitting in the classroom. Um, and I always preferred to do things like hands-on and I also like to make money. So I learned that at a very early age (laughs) that if you worked, you could actually make money and that gave you a little bit of freedom. Um, So I like, yeah, I, I think early on, I knew what it meant to work hard and I was always kind of gravitating towards working more than, um, you know, like writing papers or being in school. Like I was just like that more. Yeah. What was your first job? I worked, I was 12 years old. It was my summer going into sixth grade. (laughs) Um and I worked uh 40 hours a week at a travel agency for my summer break.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: <laughs> and I made What? Yeah, it was called Honey Travel. It was in Ryan, New York. And they paid me under the books. It was like $5 an hour, but I worked 40 hours a week, I was just making like 200 bucks a week as a 12-year-old. It was amazing. <laughs> and I was I was doing like Starbucks runs and Bank Deposit. I would make bank deposits. Um, this is at a time like before there were like there was basically like internet so I had to issue like boarding passes with like a typewriter literally like I would I would have to like type in people's like boarding passes and mail it to them like in the mail that's like how they got their airplane tickets Um, and then I would do like travel itineraries I would like organize brochures
1: oh my gosh how (laughs) trusting for a 12 year old
0: (laughs) yeah it was um I actually like I like loved it I literally it was like a nine to five job and like my dad would drop me off in the mornings and at five o'clock when I would finish I'd go to the YMCA and I would work out
1: <laughs> Well, going on 30
0: literally <laughs> yeah and it's you know it's crazy it was like all my friends were like doing summertime things you know but I would get that like handwritten check at like the end of the week. And I'm like, I just got 200 bucks. Like, this is great. You know?
2: (laughs) I had no idea. Yeah. 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 I've known Kyla since we were 15 years old. I had no idea about the travel. About
1: three years later. (laughs) I,
2: you know,
0: it's, it's like the reason why, so I grew up in, in Rye, New York, which is like super, super like wealthy community. but my parents weren't wealthy. Like I didn't have a lot. Um, I I obviously like had a beautiful house and like, but by comparison to like everyone else in the town, it was like, you know, we didn't have that much. Like all my friends were always going on these like luxurious vacations. Like I had never even been on a plane yet. So I think it was like a way for me to be able to like not put pressure on my parents, but like earn that money so that I could do the things that I wanted to do without having to ask my parents for it, you know, mm-hmm. so like if I wanted to go out to lunch or if I wanted to go to the mall, like I would have the ability to like participate in like all the things that my friends could do. Um, but not have to like put that pressure on my parents.
2: Okay. I just remembered a story you told me <laughs> <Uh-oh>. about white <laughs>
0: school. Tell
2: us, tell Windsor and tell our audience the story about your promotion, your promotion days
0: oh my God.
2: in high school. This is such a good, like, this is such a good story. <laughs> this story, let me just tell you guys, this story is Kyla in a nutshell. Okay. Like I have the chills. Please tell Oh my
0: gosh. Well, I hope. Yeah. So I, um, I was always like, you know, I spent like a huge part of my career in like hospitality. Right. But um so I was always like organizing stuff uh like parties and stuff when I was in high school I was like total like party girl um but so we were organizing like our after prom party for like our junior prom and I went into like an AOL chat room and I met like a guy named NJ Nick like that was like his handle and he was like a club promoter in New York City <laughs> and I was like and he worked at like Sound Factory mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like <laughs> I was like, Hey, like I have like a hundred kids coming from Westchester and like, we want to take a bus into the city and like go to a club for like after prom or whatever. And at that time, like a lot of the clubs were like 18 plus, but they would make special exceptions for like, like prom parties and whatnot. So if you had enough people, they would like give you like a deal or whatever. So he was like, like that's amazing you know he's a club promoter and I'm basically guaranteeing like 100 people and he was like great like why don't you you know like you can sell all the tickets to your friends so I literally would like walk down the hallways like selling after prom party tickets like collecting cash and like you know and then organize like the bus ride so after prom we like went into the city went to sound factory and he was like do you want to do this more I'm like sure like great and he's like I'll pay you for it I'm like okay cool so I started like planning these like after parties all the time in New York city. And it, I would organize like a bus and we would like sell tickets and the tickets would be like, they would literally have my name on it. And like my beeper number, <laughs> and, like, beeper. my beeper number, <laughs> and, but it would be really cool events. It'd be at like club exit with like Eminem or like Busta Rhymes or like Jennifer Lopez. Like the, they were all, I mean, think about the time. Like that's like, you know, like late nineties, like early 2000, like that's like, that's like you know, going to like the best shows or whatever. So I would sell these tickets for like $75 a piece. And I would get people from like all over Westchester and we'd like take buses like into the city. And then at, and we go to like these clubs and at the end of the night, I would go into like the little office and they would pay me $10 a person. So if I was bringing
1: 100
0: people, I would make, you know, a thousand dollars in cash. And they would, um I would sit in like the little room with like the club owner. It was like so sketchy <laughs> and they would like count, they would like count out the cash. They would like hand it to me and everybody was happy. It was like, my friends had like the best time ever. Like I loved it because mm-hmm. I was like hosting and like organizing everything. Um, but the craziest story is that I, you know, then obviously like went off, went off to school. I moved to Boston. I lived in Boston for like 15 years um, and I came back to New York to launch table list here, which I'm sure we'll get into some of that, but my first office is at a, a, we work in meat packing and I go to my new office at, we work in meat back in New York city, like to my roots and I look at the office next to me and who was it? It was NJ Nick, literally the club promoter that I met on AOL like 20 years before oh my God. in the office next to me, still doing his thing. And I'm like, I cannot believe how like full circle my life has come right now. It was mm-hmm. absolutely crazy. That's my favorite story. Well, right? I was going
1: to say that's like such foreshadowing for table. Oh so that's God. crazy.
0: Yeah. Unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. I was literally like, and like, obviously, he's not called NJ Nick anymore. But like, to me, he'll always be NJ Nick.
2: Nick. He's Nick Champagne. Now. Yeah, Yeah. <laughs>
0: exactly. Um, yeah. OK, so after
2: college, I mean, after high school, you went to college in Boston. Tell us about that. And then tell us about because you did a, um, a co-op. So yeah. for those of you listening, a co-op program is basically like a work internship type thing. But um, tell us about your college experience and what you did.
0: Yeah. So, you know, because I knew early on that I really love working, it was like, I found out about, Nor- I went to Northeastern, I found out about Northeastern's co-op program, and it was different from like any other college I had even looked at. So um, Northeastern's program is a five, it's a five-year program, but they split it up by doing... Uh, six months school and then six months work, like paid work. Um, So by the time you graduate, you actually have had some legit like real jobs and you have a really built your resume and your experience. So it kind of puts you ahead of the curve in terms of uh, a lot of college grads that maybe haven't had that kind of work experience. Um, So it was the only school I applied to. I didn't apply anywhere else. I literally only applied Mm -hmm. to Northeastern. Um, My parents wanted to kill me. Um, But um, I thankfully got in. I applied early. I got in. And um yeah, and I did that because I really just wanted to do the um the the co-op program.
2: And can you talk about the the co-op program? Like what was it? What'd you do, your experience?
0: Yeah. So I um it was funny because it it is so funny how like things just happen in life and it can literally change the whole trajectory and path of like your entire life. So I had um, interviewed um, for a job um, at Fidelity. Like I was literally going to work in like finance. Oh my gosh. Which <laughs> is so crazy. <laughs> and like the day before the co-op was supposed to start, they ended up canceling the co-op program. So the co- like Fidelity's uh, internship program, they ended up canceling it. Um, and so I got a call from my co-op advisor being like, Um, I'm so sorry, but like, you know, we're, we're canceling the program. So, so I was supposed to start like that, that day or that week or whatever. And now all the co-ops had been taken. So I was left scrambling because I didn't have a job essentially for my, for my six month co-op. And it just so happened there was an event planner called Raffinelli events. Uh, They were like the premier event planning company in all of the Northeast And of course my background and, you know, loving like parties and whatever, like that was, that would be like my dream, but they were like super unorganized and they didn't post their co-op position until like, like literally like the very last minute. So all the other jobs have been taken. And then all of a sudden this one job comes in for this like event planning company. Mm -hmm. And my advisor called me right away and was like. I think this could be like really great for you. So I went and interviewed and um I ended up getting the job and I ended up actually staying with them for all four years, like through school. Wow. Um like even when I was in school, I was still working um doing those events. So yeah.
1: And so were you an event planning major?
0: I was an English major. <laughs> no way.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> I don't ask me why. It's like <laughs> I, you know, I had like a really good professor when I was, um, a freshman, a really good English professor. His name was professor DeRoche. He was like this old, really old guy, but he was like very inspiring, like just his messaging and like the way he taught. And like, I really, really like felt like I learned a lot. And that, I think that's the thing that it's like, no matter what class it was or what subject, as long as, as long as I felt like I was like actually really learning something and wasn't just being like robotic, like learning, like you know, multiple choice, like memorization, like if someone like inspired me, then I was like, oh, this is the path I should go down. Right. Um, and he was an English teacher. So I ended up becoming an English major and I I signed up for like all of his classes. Um, it was a huge mistake. It's like, (laughs) no one has the time to be an English major. It's like, especially if you're working, it's like, you have to read like five novels a week. You have to like write all these papers. It was like a disaster. (laughs) Um, but
2: you know, so through the internship at Raffinelli, did you meet any people that helped you with like your next path in life, like your table is and what you're doing now, or what did yeah. you learn from
0: Raffinelli? So crazy. So again, like everything kind of spun from that experience, right? Like I was working with some of the most influential people in all of Boston, some of them like in the world or in the country, like, you know, billionaires (laughs) like Robert Kraft. And um, one of our clients was the guy that invented the magnetic strip on the back of a credit card. So you can imagine (laughs) (laughs) that kind of, so it's like, you know, that kind of clientele, like, you know, but, but it was like really high pressure. So you're doing like, you know, million dollar events that it's like super high pressure, very like detail oriented. Um, But through that experience, I met, you know, a crazy amount of people and I really like expand my network and I was still really young, you know, so I was planning like Super Bowl ring ceremonies and I was 21 years old, um, which was really cool, but it was also like, uh, it was, it was very stressful. Um, So I think it's like, I always use that, the example of like, you know, so many at the time it was a lot of women that would like, come in a lot of like young girls that would come in to like interview for like event planning positions and they really like envisioned it being like jennifer lopez and like the wedding planner and it's like oh it's not that like you were on your feet like 23 hours a day like doing some of the craziest things you've like ever could have imagined doing to like make these events happen successfully um but what was really cool is like So I actually, uh, I had, I took like a year to kind of learn accounting. So I worked um, under the CFO um, because I really wanted to learn how to like, you know, I was an English major. I wasn't getting that experience at school. So I really wanted to learn how to like budget for events. Um, And the CFO, his name was Ken, and this will be relevant in a minute. Um, But Ken taught me everything I know about like accounting, finance, and like, you know how to budget how to you know budget correctly how everything has to match up like he was so detail oriented um like fanatical like crazy like he like i would trust him with like any like business right um and, and then a couple of the clients obviously um i met and uh I built relationships with even when i left raffinelli um a couple years later and what's so crazy is like one of the Clients that I worked with, a guy named Abner Curtin, who Sasha, you've met uh, many times. Um, he's actually the one that called me during the pandemic to start Dispense. So it's it's crazy. And then with Ken, who was the CFO, um, when we went through Fire Festival and Table List and all of those things, Ken was the one that I called. I hadn't talked to him in 10 years, wow. but he was the one that I called. And Ken is now the CFO of both my companies um oh my gosh yeah so it's wild how you know these experiences and like the people that you meet along the way um especially if you make it a point to build good relationships you don't burn bridges like you make sure that like the good people stay in your life um it's really crazy how like it all kind of leads to like your next path Mm -hmm.
2: so Okay. I know your life story, but I just, I'm trying to create like a timeline because yeah. this, it connects just like how you explain. So after yeah. Raffinelli after school, then what did you do after
0: school? What was your next? So time? I was working. Yeah. So I was working. I left Raffinelli. Um, and again, like through another connection I had there, um, I got a phone call from like a, a nightlife operator in Boston who, um, owned and operated a bunch of restaurants and nightclubs and was looking for uh, like an in-house event planner um we had done work with him before so he was familiar with me and so he called me and was like we want to hire you to come into to like our hospitality group to kind of build this program and 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 work with us um so i started working there it was called speakeasy hospitality group um and i started working there and um kind of like slowly worked my way up to doing a whole bunch of different things but I had never really worked. Like I'd always done like the event planning from like an outsider's view, but I I never worked on like the, the venue side. Right. So it was like kind of a whole new learning curve for me, learning the industry from like the the inside operations. Um, So I actually was there for about seven years or yeah, close to seven years um, and opened and managed a bunch of different restaurants and nightclubs in Boston. And Through that experience, you know, Boston's such like an innovative city. There's so many colleges, there's so many students, um, and I would constantly get approached by students or like recent grads that would have like the next big idea, right, Mm -hmm. for hospitality, Um, But I, you know, A, it's like, I always wanted to be helpful to the students like that were either doing a project or like looking to to start something. Um, And B, it was like, maybe there was a good idea out there. So you never knew what you were going to get pitched or like, you know, what could be the next big thing. Um, And so at one point, it was like, again, I had been there for about seven years. And like, one of the things that was really frustrating as an operator was like, there was just very little technology Um, That You had technology for restaurants, but there's very little technology for nightlife. So, you know, this, this, um, you know, Northeastern kid came in and was like, I have this idea about launching like hot wire for bottle service. And I was like, "Mm, I don't think that would work, but, (laughs) but I kind of see what you're getting at. Like it was, it was when like Uber was becoming like super popular hotel tonight, like every, like all the apps, right. It was like Mm -hmm. all the apps where everything was kind of at your fingertips And one thing that didn't exist was just like, if you and your friends wanted to go out, like you had to like call a promoter or you had to call a club or like a bar to kind of find out like, how much is it going to cost? Or like, can I get in with 10 of my friends? Like, is there going to be a long line? Like all these kind of questions is a very manual process. So the idea was, um, table list essentially. And it was how do we create an easier experience for consumers to be able to just book, that experience on their phone, right? Very transparent pricing. Um, They can just book and show up and they can walk right in and they can have a reservation or prepay for it with their friends, um, order bottles, like do whatever they need to do. So that was the idea. And that was um, basically like, yeah, I I got so excited about it that I told my boss and he was like, you can use all these, you know all the venues um, here to kind of be a tester for the new app um gave his full support and i ended up leaving and co-founding tableist and wow. then you moved in with me <laughs> in <the Boston. laughs> i moved in with you like less than a year later yeah i did
2: well, <laughs> you tested it out in boston yeah. it was working in boston and then you thought okay let's open a new city yeah
0: exactly. really quick well, doesn't
1: boston have
0: the worst nightlife really, like, real
1: clubs in boston right
0: There are, so there are now, there weren't really back then. There were like maybe three clubs back then. There were a lot of like places to go out. So I think we had like 30 venues in Boston or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, if you're going to prove a concept for nightlife, it's like, if it's going to work, it it has to work in a real city, you know, like, and I love Boston. I don't mean to, but like, it's got to work in like a New York or a Miami or something like that. So New York was kind of like the next testing ground um
2: so who was your first venue in new york and how did you get
0: them signed on oh my god sasha do you, i don't know if you remember this <laughs> i, do, I just want you to tell the story <laughs> i was like really i i don't even know if i remember who the official first venue was i think it was the box maybe um that's a, oh, that's a hard huge. one yeah oh my god huge yeah <laughs> um And actually the owner, Simon Hammerstein ended up investing in table list. I remember that meeting too. Um, so, but what was, Oh God, New York, you know, the New York nightlife operators, as you guys can imagine, like it was not easy. It was like, I went door to door with like coffees. Like I would find out like what they drank, what they like, like to eat and like whatever. And I would just show up at their offices to be like, Work with us. <laughs> like we'll we'll, you know, we're a new app. Like we'll send people your way. Um and it wasn't until like I had a couple of like warm introductions to a few people um who, you know, were very kind to me and like would give us a chance. And and then I think Cole from Bounce. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bounce is like a, you know, a club, like a kind of unique like sports bar slash club in the city and the owner like is super well connected and I sat down with him and he just started making phone call after phone call he knew every club owner every manager he started calling everybody he's like I'm going to introduce you to Kyla like you need to be listed on their new app um and it was really cool it was like it really showed me that like the um hospitality world is like very interconnected and it's all relationship based and so if you could build those relationships and just show that like you really, really care and that like, you're really going to work with them and be a good partner. um, It really started to kind of like open up the gates to like New York city nightlife. Mm-hmm. And I think by the first year, we had every single major hospitality group signed up, which was the coolest thing. It was like Tao group, butter group, and like one Oak, the box VIP club. um, uh, you know, I I can't remember all of them, but it was it was like all the major like hard to get into places.
2: Yeah, and you were out. We were out you were dragging me out. Not that I had to <laughs> you yeah, out every night with me. But every night, like we were living in my <laughs> studio basically apartment, and Kyla lived in a uh, carry on suitcase for what two years? Oh my god, <laughs> that's all I had.
0: Literally, bad. I wear like the same the same black dress, yeah, like black dress, yeah. meeting, and then I would just go out in that same dress. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, like Jenny Humphrey, the gossip girl, when she like moves out with her so oh, yeah.
0: in New York. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I was like, I, and a lot of times too it was like, you know, yeah, I would go out. I would have like sneakers on, or like I just you know, but you, it wouldn't matter. Like I wouldn't have time to go home. My office is in me packing, so it was like right there. So it'd be like. I go down to like Bagatelle and then I would like make my rounds around like meatpacking and just like be checking on clients and like checking on venues, like making sure everything's going smoothly. I mean, it was so much like hands-on stuff, but it was super fun. Yeah. It was super fun. Cause like I could bring all my friends with me, like part of, part of like doing what we did was that like, I had to host and like show up, you know? At the time, it's like, you know, you're single, you've got your girlfriends with you, you're in New York, and like, you're going out to all the clubs. Like, it was awesome.
2: It was awesome. It was amazing.
0: It was a good time.
2: All right. So, Table List is booming in New York City. Let's talk about Fire Festival.
0: <laughs> oh, Fire Festival. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, okay. So, you know, we were growing... Um, You know, we had raised quite a bit of money at this point. Um, And, you know, one of the things that one of the challenges we were running into is like, as we were growing this like consumer app is like we were running into like overbookings or like pricing being wrong, events being wrong. Um, So there were two things happening at the company. We had 23 people and essentially we needed to split the team up into like two different teams. Um, and so I was COO at the time. Um, and my team was focused on an acquisition of a venue management software that was, um, being used by a lot of the major clubs in Miami, like live and story and club space and whatnot. And then the other part of the team was focused on consumer. My former co-founder, um, was talking to Billy McFarland about this amazing festival that was going to happen in the Bahamas. And, um, you know, at that point, like our tech had really evolved and we had a a really strong engineering team. Um, and one of the things about fire as you guys can imagine, like the one thing that they did amazingly well was like just their branding and marketing and like selling the event. Like it was, um, unreal. Like they had uh, incredible, uh, branding and, one of the things that was super important to them was to have like a white labeled ticketing provider. So they had put in, uh, or sorry, they were basically evaluating who was going to ticket for this amazing festival. And it was really between Eventbrite and TableList. And the reason why they went with TableList, even though we were much smaller, much like less equipped, um, but we were able to actually like fully white label all the packages um, being sold online. Um, like they didn't want like Eventbrite's branding anywhere. They just wanted their own branding. So we were able to give that to them. So they ended up choosing Tableless to be the ticketing provider.
1: And so how does that work with ticketing? Like, Are they paying you guys a flat contract <laughs> fee to work with you? Or are you getting a price per sale or...
0: Yeah. So the way that it works with like most ticketing contracts is that whatever that processing fee is that the customer is paying. So, you know, you go to like any concert or you buy a ticket anywhere, it could be a movie ticket, doesn't matter. You see that annoying little like processing fee and then it's like 15% or whatever it is. Um, And that, you know, is a part of that does include like the actual credit card processing because the processors charge a fee for that, Um, but a lot of it is marked up for the ticketing provider to then take the fees for providing the software to be able to do that right. So the way it was structured was that table would make a small fee um, of the processing fee for every ticket sold to fire festival. But the caveat is that with very large scale events, um, typically what happens is, you know, the money that's being sold is leading up to the event. So the event hasn't happened yet as people are buying tickets, right? And usually with like the larger ticketing companies, um, they're passing those funds on to the organizer, even though the event hasn't happened yet. And that's like very risky as you you will hear in the next part of the story. (laughs) (laughs) So imagine, right? Like we're selling all these tickets, millions of dollars of tickets, and we're then depositing the funds into the fire festivals like bank account um, before the event even happens. But it's, it's very common in festivals for this to happen because the festivals need to put down payments on deposits for vendors for artists for you know um food like whatever is being provided like a lot of those vendors like require those deposits so they need that upfront money uh, and cash flow to be able to like actually plan the festival the thing is is that like Eventbrite has insurance for that Eventbrite has like you know uh plans in place for that like We at TableList did not, because we were a small little startup, 23-person startup. So um, it was one of those things where, you know, in hindsight, it's like, why would we ever have done that? Um, Because then, as everyone knows, you know, shit hit the fan. The festival uh, ended up being like a total bust. And the first thing that everybody's doing is requesting a refund, um, or they're charging it back. Um, and they should, right. Like they should get their money back. Like they were totally scammed and they should get their money back. The problem was that we didn't have the money anymore, but we were the merchant on record. So every single chargeback that was coming in was hitting our bank account negatively. So, and fire wasn't like, they kept saying they were going to give us the money back. They're like, Oh yeah, yeah yeah, we'll like give you the money back. We'll give you the money back to issue the refunds. It was a total scam. They had already spent all the money there was no money left so we're watching our
1: i'm sorry what do you think like i i've seen the documentaries and everything but like what percent of the money do you think was actually spent on the festival like 10 percent? because they just had those like hurricane tents and (laughs) the cheese sandwiches
0: i know so i do like there wasn't a a huge chunk that was spent because again like the artists required like massive deposits like same with like all the influencers like early on like they were they were paid you know like they had to be paid so it the money was spent it just wasn't spent on the right things you know um i don't think billy just like pocketed all the money i think he certainly has made a lot of money off of like all of his fraudulent activities over the years but like the the, the there was just no way that they were going to be able to pull off the things that they said they could i mean they were like selling people these like yacht experiences and there were no yachts. Like there were like people were booking like a $75,000, like yacht rental for two days. And like, there were no yachts. Like, I think the intention was that they'd find them. If like someone paid 75 K that they could like scramble it together and like find a yacht, but like they, they didn't, they couldn't. Um, So it was like everything was kind of just like oh Billy was going to figure it out on the fly but like you can't plan a festival like that it's like there was no running water there were no toilets like there was no infrastructure at all on this island like you can't plan a festival on an island that has zero infrastructure and like think that you're going to build it you know um and L- you know it's sad it's like so many like that so obviously the documentary is like did a good job, I think, at portraying, like, you know, some of, like, the, um, store owners and, like, vendors, like, in the Bahamas that, like, really got screwed over, but there are so many people that were, like, affected by, by this, like, so many other vendors that, like, weren't included as a part of the story. We were one of them, right, and we wanted to stay under the radar as much as possible, um, you know, at the end of the day, we ended up suffering like a three and a half million dollar liability with our payments processor. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was a really, really tough time, um, to kind of figure out a path forward for that. Um, but there were like, even like the guy, this guy, Nate, who works for Stran, um, is like, he provided all the swag, right? So like every fire festival t-shirt sweatshirt, like, anything branded like his company fronted all the money and like they they provided all the swag that got shipped down there and they like they didn't see a penny back either you know so like they totally got screwed like there are just so many people that were affected by it that like it it it, it, the documentaries like didn't even really do justice to show like the huge impact that had kind of happened it was like it was really sad you know so Um, how
2: did you deal with that at table list? How did you deal with the chargebacks and all of that drama?
0: Yeah, it was hard. It was, um, so again, team of 23 people, we'd been building this product for, you know, four or five years at that point, we're doing really well, like really like had a solid team and we're doing really well. At the end of the day though, um, we had to do whatever it it took to just preserve burn. Like we just, like we were bleeding cash, like literally bleeding cash. So it was pretty much an overnight decision that we had to cut the team down to five people. We went from 23 people wow. down to five people. And it was really, um, it was really hard. It was like people who I had worked with for years that like, you know, were really good people. And and obviously, you know, these things happen. Um, so no one like blamed us, but it was just really difficult. And the five people I ended up staying were myself and, basically the way we made the decision was anyone that actually contributed to sales, like dollars in stayed, anyone that was like outside of that had, had to go. Cause the only thing that mattered was like generating revenue. So, um, it was myself and four other people that stayed. And I took over as CEO at that point, which means I had a whole slew of problems I had to solve, um, like right away. And, you know, I went to our investors. I was super honest with them. They didn't blame us, but it was like, you know, I had to try to convince them to like still believe that there was a path forward for the company, um, other than just like saying like I give up. Um, I spent four months negotiating with our payments processor. Um, ended up co- coming to like a settlement agreement. I was like, listen, like at the end of the day, three and a half million dollars to you is like a rounding error, like but to us, it could put us out of business or it will put us out of business. So work with me, like, what can we do to like settle this in a way that like, you'll be happy and we'll be able to continue our business. Um, and to their credit, um, you know, it's a massive multi, multi, multi-billion dollar company. Um, they were they work with me and it was great. It was a great learning experience. Right. So can you your- that.
1: I know that's so like, insane. you just <laughs> say
0: like, Oh yeah, like, <laughs> Because I remember this. It was not. I mean, I cried the day we signed the agreement. Like I was sitting in the bank with like the notary. I'm like literally like sobbing.
1: I'm sure you're probably (laughs) so emotionally exhausted.
0: It was was super emotional. Yeah. Um, Nonstop. Nonstop. Yeah. But, you know, it forced you like as an entrepreneur, it's like, if you really believe in what you're building, you really believe in your business, like nothing will stop you. Like you will fight tooth and nail to like see it through. And I still really, like, I still felt that there was like a path forward. And and what I was most excited about was that now we had a team and it's like, if you let, if you let like most of your team go, it's like, you know, the people that stay like really want to be there. Like they really care just as much as you do. And they really wanted to see it through. So now it's like, you have this core group of people that care just as much as you do and like really want to find a path forward. And like, that's where like the magic happens. It's like, you have to start thinking outside the box. Like we had no, we had no like funding. We had no way of like, like we just had to be scrappy and it forced us to like, just build better software. Like we just had to like Mm -hmm. think about the software and like solve problems with building a better product because we couldn't hire anybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, and what's so crazy is like, you know, we settled the liability that was like super painful, but like we made it through, we turned the product around. So instead of doing consumer facing like B2C, we focused on like that acquisition that we made of like that venue management software. And we started to focus on just like building the relationships directly with the venue accounts and building like that subscription revenue. Right. So it was recurring. It was predictable. And we cut all of that, like anything that we like didn't want to spend money on, like we just, or like anything that wasn't worth spending money on, we just like cut it. Like it didn't matter. Like all marketing cut, all sales cut, like everything was cut. And we just focus on the product and building those relationships with like our partners, and the most magical, amazing thing happened. Like we turned things around. We ended up. So that was 2017 when fire happened. 2018, we spent the year rebuilding. 2019 ended up being like the best year we ever had as a company with just five people. Can you
2: tell us numbers. Are you allowed yeah. or no?
0: Um, I a lot. Yeah. It was a a lot. Like we were operating in like over 50 cities worldwide. Like it was Uh, the most venues we had ever signed up. It was the most usage we were ever seeing on the app. Like we were doing it and we were (laughs) so excited and the software, like our CTO, who's my co-founder was incredible. Like he literally rebuilt our software from like the ground up and we debuted our brand new software in January of 2020 Oh, God. and we were so excited <laughs> and then COVID hit and Virgin shut everything down hospitality like well
1: and like in the big cities too they had the longest restrictions as well because we were some in New York everywhere
0: so some of them did but some of them did not like Miami and mm. that was uh so it was like Florida Arizona Texas those three states stayed open. <laughs> um, and thankfully, we had a lot of accounts in those states. So it kind of like helped to keep tableless alive a little bit. But I mean, it was just like a total double whammy. It's like, we basically had to build um, that business from the ground up twice. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, with everything that ha- it's like every challenge, it's like, again, if you believe in it, it's like, you'll see it through or like, you'll find a path forward. And like, I'm just too stubborn to like Mm -hmm. be like oh well like I'm just gonna stop now (laughs) I've thought about it you you cannot you will not you can't yeah you can't so um so yeah with you know and that was kind of that was the COVID uh hitting and shutting everything down was how we started dispense so So
2: this is a crazy story too about dispense so tell us that story because First tell us how Tableless and dispense are related. Sure. Yeah.
0: So um, so obviously Tableless just launched this brand new version of our software. It's super robust. Like we've been building a software for like eight or nine years. So like it has a lot of functionality. And uh, but no one's using it because it's COVID and everything's shut down. Um, so going back to the Raffinelli days, um, Abner, the uh client that I mentioned, um, hadn't talked to him in years. Uh but was he was familiar with TableList because he had used it before, calls me up during the pandemic. He now, like present day, owns uh, a ton of dispensaries and they needed uh, a lot of dispensaries during COVID were deemed essential businesses and they were crowded. They had lines around the corner because everybody wanted to get high and smoke weed during the pandemic, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, he called me in like this total panic and he's like, I have a really busy store in Illinois. It's gonna get shut down. I need some type of like a ticketing or reservation system to like help me just manage the customers that are coming in and out of the store. Like can I table- you
2: For one second. Yeah. So can you explain why a dispensary
0: needs that software? So it was it was just strictly because of the pandemic that they needed it because they needed if they wanted to stay open, they had to comply with social distancing. But when you have hundreds of people showing up mm. at the same time, it's like almost impossible to keep people apart because everybody wants to come through the door and like place their order. So in order to, and they they were doing at this one store in Illinois, they were having, they had 1500 orders a day. So 1500 wow. people a day were showing up at the dispensary and there was no spacing of it. Like there was no way to like know when they were going to show up. So there would be lines and everybody was kind of crowding. And so the state was like, it's COVID, you're deemed essential, but if you're not complying with social distancing, then like, we're going to shut you down. So that was why it was like very, like, like they needed some way to like put a timestamp on someone's order. So to say like, you can show up at 11, you can show up at 1115, you can show up at 1130, but like, if it's not that time, you can't come in. Um, So that was more of like the, like why there was such urgency for it. Um, so again, like crazy. It was like, Abner was a client of mine, like what, 20, 15, 20 years before that. Uh, and obviously like a good friend, but, you know, he needed, uh, he needed a software. And so we started, we weren't doing anything else. Like I, we needed to get creative to find new ways to just generate some revenue during the pandemic so that we could keep the lights on. Uh, for tableists and they were willing to pay us so we're like sure why not let's just start working with cannabis dispensaries like how bad could it be <laughs> you know <laughs> um and as it turns out there were like so many um like similarities between retail and hospitality that like I never would have thought of like I never would have pictured myself in like the cannabis world um, but there were so many similarities, like uh, customers are, are very like high touch in cannabis. Um, a lot of customers are still learning about cannabis and like how it can benefit them and like what products are available. It's the same as hospitality. Like people have a lot of questions when they want to plan their birthday party, right? So um, in the back end of of Tableless, there were actually a lot of features that the dispensary operators were using and they were like, wow, this feature is really cool. Like, can you tweak it a little so it's like more relevant to you know to us as opposed to like a a nightclub or whatever um and so we just started doing that like we just started working with them and like learning about it and started learning more about like the cannabis space realized that there was like very little like good technology um it was still it's still such like a nascent industry right um and realized that there was just like a massive opportunity so we decided to spin out a new company called Dispense, um, using a bulk of like the tableless IP, right, first, but then it changed very quickly, like after we kind of split it off. Um, We raised a a round of funding from from some really good VCs, um, hired a team and, you know, we had one customer um and in less than i don't know 8 or 9 months it grew to over 130 customers oh, um wow. and a lot of you know we're now dispense is now operating in 16 states um we've got hundreds of retailers using dispense as a software um and then while that was happening while well, we were like hospitality shut down so we're like oh let's do dispense right So we're doing dispense and now all of a sudden hospitality is coming back online (laughs) so (laughs) you've got people like partying in like I mentioned before like Miami and everywhere else and um and so you know but now like I can't really do both so you know the majority of my time is still being spent on dispense but I have a COO and like a partner who is running tableless day to day and um, Tabless is crushing it right now. So Amazing. Cool. yeah, Tabless cool. just had its best year ever, um, back up and running. Like I think now we're in 14 countries. Um, wow. it's really cool. This it's really cool to see. So, you know, see, it's like these terrible things can happen. You can, you can like these horrible setbacks that feel like you're never going to get through them, but then like, you know, something, if you like keep kind of pushing through, it's like something really positive can come out of it. So
1: so what do you think is next?
0: Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm 7 months pregnant right now, so next a baby. A baby. <laughs> have an, another baby. <laughs> um but um yeah, I think for us like, you know, it's like we'll continue to grow both companies. Um I'll, you know, mainly focus my time on dispense, but uh we'll continue to grow both companies and we'll see, you know, we'll see where it goes. So
1: and then I have a quick question about like on the technology side, yeah. obviously you have experts that are in there, but do you guys have like trend forecasters or people that are predicting? Like, I feel like like with the rise of like TikTok and AI and like all these different platforms, it's like you probably, things are probably coming at you guys all the time of just like user interaction or ways that people are evolving or like younger generations are evolving with how they use things
0: yeah it's such a good question so we have like in our company like slack channel we have like it's like the amount of posts that uh our team is doing internally about like different ai like platforms like possibilities of like you know new services like today uh there was one that's like a uh, an ai like bug finder so it'll find like bugs in your code and like help you like debug like quickly and Um, and then obviously you have like the chat, you know, uh, GPT and you've got like all these other tools that can like write blogs for you or, you know, whatever. I don't think we've found anything yet that like, like our product on the dispensary side is so specific to just cannabis retailers. So like TikTok for us, like, isn't, uh, like, wouldn't be like a good channel. And also there's a lot of restrictions for cannabis as well. Like like you can't actually do ads or like promote on like most uh platforms twitter is the first one that just came out with recent news that now you can actually do cannabis ads um which was like it was really big news for the industry right but it's it's still not federally legal so there's still a lot of restrictions there but as far as like a lot of those tools like we're constantly looking out for like what could help us um but it's mostly like content related or like you know product related um not necessarily like sales related at this point um so are people just coming to
2: you by word of mouth or how's it working with the cannabis side
0: yeah so on the cannabis side it's mostly uh referral based so you know one thing about the cannabis industry is that like uh the, the market's like very fragmented, right? Because it's not federally legal. So every state has its own regulations, has its own technologies. So what we've done is we've, we're kind of like neutral, like we'll integrate with any with anyone, like any point of sale, any payments provider. Um, and because of that, we give retailers a choice. We're like, you can choose whoever you want to work with. Like if you use Dispense, you can then pick your tech stack, right? You can choose like the best provider for you. Um, And so what that's allowed us to do is actually leverage a lot of those partnerships from those integrations to be um, like the number one referral partner for like an e-commerce solution. Um, So that's mainly like where all of our sales are coming from. We do spend a lot of time on like our SEO, like that's Mm -hmm. super important. Um, And we try to drive like more organic traffic that way. But you know, we're still pretty young. We we don't have like a, we only have one salesperson at this point. Wow. And, and like the majority of like our sales have just been through like referrals or inbound. Wow.
1: You could write a book.
0: <laughs> I know. I, so I've thought of a title already. You want to share it? Yeah, I'll share it. Okay. I, I thought it was a secret for some reason, but no, I could totally someone... share it. Okay, share it. So it's going to be called baptism by fire Oh, (laughs) uh, becoming a ceo for the first time
1: (laughs) oh my gosh that is brilliant
0: i love it thank you so much for
2: taking the time out and talking with us and sharing all this stuff i mean this is like you couldn't you couldn't make this up i know
1: but it's i think what's so interesting about it is yours it's kind of like watching like a TV show or something. It's so relatable. I feel like to so many small business owners, you're just on this like massive scale of these, like these really public events and all this stuff that's so crazy. But I feel like to your point earlier, it's like, that's what, even when you're talking about school and like just pushing through, it's like, that's what I think separates small business owners and just entrepreneurs in general, because people have for lack of a better word like a fire in them to be like I want to make this happen and like we talk about all the time like new people getting involved in things like small things reaching out to like venture capitalists or whatever it's like even getting that first meeting started seems like you have a thousand barriers in front of you Mm -hmm. so I don't I think like as wild as your stories are like anyone would want to engage and read with like read with your content because it's so relatable.
0: huh. Totally. Yeah. I mean, every like entrepreneur that I know has some version of w- like what I've gone through, right. Just in different terms or different contexts or whatever. And if you are a true like entrepreneur and you really believe in whatever it is you're building, selling, you know uh, what, like whatever you want to do, then like you you know you just have to like see it through like you just you just have to keep going you have to Mm -hmm. keep going there's no other choice um it's true yeah
2: that's it
0: yeah I know I think about let's like could I actually sit behind a desk like nine to five and like do like the corporate thing I don't know I don't think I don't think I get I get like the appeal to it you know but (laughs) um but I don't know. I just don't think it'd be for me. <laughs> no. no,
1: no. You got to spread your wings.
0: Yeah, totally. Totally.
2: Well, thank you again.
1: Yeah, this was so much fun and so interesting. People are going to love this.
2: Yeah. Are
1: there yeah. any links? Um, Obviously, we can download table lists and dispense on the app store. Anything else you want to let people know about?
0: No, I, yeah. Dispense That's really more for, you know, retailers. Uh, so if anyone knows any dispensary owners, let me know. Um, and then, uh, and then, yeah, then there's table but that's, that's about it.
1: Great. Well, we'll link everything. Yeah. Too, so
0: yeah. Cool. All right, guys. Thank, thank you so you. much. You too. You. Bye. 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 Bye.